This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. This episode is presented by Happy Farm Botanicals. Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Hello, I'm Dr. Shirley Madeir, plastic surgeon in New York City, who approaches beauty from a holistic perspective. And I've been giving this some thought. And to me, it's a matter of beauty. Beauty is a heady topic that incorporates the physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, and in the case of plastic surgery, the medical. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter, and beauty is our business. As the consumer perception of aging morphs from chasing the elusive fountain of youth to aging well, and as millennials focus on prevention rather than repair, the focus has health at the center of the conversation. This shift is the result of the merging of wellness and beauty and the evolution of the beauty lexicon. Anti-aging as a term is out and self-care as a concept is in. The implication of this shift in the consumer mindset opens the borders of the conventional beauty landscape. Dr. Shirley Madeira, or Dr. Shirley as she's known, has a clear vision of what beauty means in both theory and practice. In the male-dominated, macho world of plastic surgery, Dr. Shirley has become an authority in the field on her own terms. Unabashedly feminine, utterly gracious, and fiercely intelligent, she's paved a path in her own way, led by her vision of holistic plastic surgery. Person before procedure. So, Dr. Shirley, thank you for coming and talking about all things beautiful today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your background because you have yes. a very interesting approach to kind of a very traditional field. Yes. Um, your education is sort of a very traditional Western medical path. You graduated from Brown University and then went to Dartmouth Medical School and Brown Medical School followed by a residency um, at the University of Connecticut and the Montefiore Medical yes. um, Center and then a fellowship beyond that. So it's a very sort of traditional path. Yes. Yet you, your practice is anything but traditional. <laughs> I think everything from the fact that your practice is in Soho instead of sort of on the Upper East Side somewhere. Yes. And you also describe your practice as sort of a holistic approach to plastic surgery. Like, what does that mean exactly? And is that something that you kind of had in your mind on the outset? Or is it something you've kind of grown into and it's evolved? Firstly, thank you so much for having me here. I am honored to be in Aww, your presence. Thank you. I have so much love and admiration and respect for you. So I am grateful. Thank you. You know, holistic plastic surgery and my background. For me, yes, I had a very traditional path towards becoming a plastic surgeon. But at some point, I really had to think about myself and putting myself in my practice. And I had to think about my culture and the values that I was brought up with. And then there was also a point during my first year of practice where I thought, okay, it isn't just about this one part of the body that I'm operating on. So let me explain a little bit more what I mean about that. I am of a multicultural background. And in my culture and in my family, whenever we had an illness or we were sick, weren't feeling well, we actually turned to nature. 
to try because to... you're Haitian. Yes. Right? So that I was born in Haiti. Place. Right. My father is <laughs> Spanish and Italian. My mother's from Haiti. So it's a it's a it's a lot of madness. It's beautiful <laughs> a madness. Lot of passion. It's a lot of passion. <laughs> so I had all these cultures that influenced me. And so when I think about beauty and healing and health and wellness, I. I had to, had to incorporate all of these teachings and values into my practice. And so what really solidified it for me, because the whole idea of holistic plastic surgery, yes, I made that up, but it wasn't something that I was thinking about all along. It was a seminal point in my first year of practice where I saw one of my first patients and he came in because he wanted liposuction and he was working out and eating right, but uh, it was just a little something extra that it's he wanted. It's interesting that it was a male. <laughs> yes. Right. Very trendy, right? Even way back then. Right. But um, he just needed a little bit extra. So I was very happy to perform plastic surgery and liposuction. And I was really prepared and excited because I I did um, not only a plastic surgery training, but cosmetic plastic surgery training in addition to that. So I was excited to get going and deliver my best for him. So we went to the operating room. I explained risk, limitations, potential complications. We went to surgery. Everything went well, beautifully, swimmingly, no complications. He's recovering beautifully. And yet, on one of the first post-operative visits, he and his wife came to see me for follow-up. And when I removed the bandages, the garment, et cetera, I was thrilled because I Mm -hmm. saw my result coming into being, even though there was some swelling and some bruising. Mm -hmm. But what was the seminal point and moment for me was that he really didn't look as excited as I was. Mm -hmm. And his wife pointed to the lowest part of his torso and his trunk in his groin area. And she looked at me with some concern and asked, is that still going to work? And exactly. And, I guess it was a little bit humorous, but it Uh really wasn't. And that's when a light went off in my head and I thought, oh my gosh, I was operating on this man's chest and torso. It had nothing to do with his groin area. However, what I did affected not just the groin area because gravitationally things went down, but it also affected how he felt, how his wife felt, Uh how they, what they believed. And I thought, OMG. I've got to do things a little differently. Even though I'm operating on one or two parts of the body, this is a systemic experience. Because that's not really taught in medical school, is it? You know, we're taught systems and isolation in medical school, reproductive Mm -hmm. system, hormonal system, endocrine system, you know, it's a muscular system. And sometimes the assumption is there that, of course, everything is related. And of course, you know, one thing leads Mm -hmm. to another, et cetera. But in the actual execution of the practice, either we tend to forget that or it's not as stressed. Mm -hmm. So it was that experience that taught me that, yeah, I have to take a more holistic approach to not just the person or the body part in front of me, but the person as a whole, which then became my tagline, holistic plastic surgery for the discerning person before procedure. And so how does that actually play out? in your practice in terms of kind of mindset, yeah. motivation, aesthetics, you know, kind of the the process, uh, the consultative process yes. um, with patients? Because I think it's sort of very different. You have almost a very old school side manner, which is, you know, amazing in these days of clinics where you're like in and out in 15 minutes. Yes, because that's important to me. I think that how someone feels about himself or herself and then them entrusting me with that kind of conversation there's some vulnerability there which I honor and I just don't want to take it for granted I mean admittedly some people think I'm woot woot okay (laughs) 
I, I accept that. I might be a little woot woot, but you it's... may have been like when you started doing this, but now people are like, oh, yeah. I know what she's talking about. Yeah, now. what was she talking about? I actually had a patient ask me, well, what's so holistic about your practice? Do you right. like put tinctures on your scalpel? And I was just like, wow, no. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for asking me that question because this means I need to do the work to really explain what it is. What it is. So my consultative process um, takes anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. So that's long. Mm-hmm. But I feel that that's the minimum that I could do to really help the prospective patient understand where I'm coming from and see whether or not they're in alignment with my philosophy. I'm not for everyone, and I accept that as well. So we talk about from the start, right? We talk about what their needs are, what they're looking for, what their desires is or are. And from there, I sort of have this sort of triangle or ladder of how I think about how the consultation should go. So I'll explain who I am. What I do, even though it's obvious, it says plastic surgery right. on my, my door, but I do repeat it. And then I, I tell them what my philosophy is. I approach things this way, bottom up, top down, whichever way, because this is what I believe will help to contribute to your best outcome surgery or no surgery. Right. And so I'll take it from skincare. What are you using on your skin? I'll take it to what are you eating? What's your nutrition? What are your stresses? Um, do you exercise? Do you smoke? Do you do drugs? And those are a lot of basic questions that I mm-hmm. believe all doctors ask, but then I really will try to tie it in and therefore create a prescription for healthful beauty that I like to leave them with so that whether it includes surgery or not, they have a plan for how they can achieve their goals, whether it involves me or not. You know, I think it's very interesting because it kind of ties into, I don't know that it's a new trend, but people are talking about this whole, it's not even a concept, it's an actual practice of psychodermatology. Yeah. Which I find fascinating because it is a thing. Yes. And you actually have to go through two residencies, both like dermatology and And psychology. psychology. And... You know, I know that you also believe, because I've, you know, heard some of other interviews you've done, that you really believe that procedures have an ability to heal mm-hmm. in a way that goes beyond sort of the physical cutting. I mean, I think it kind of ties into this because this there's sort of a, a psychological component yes. to making the decision because a lot of people sort of, I think, chalk up cosmetic procedures or plastic surgery yes. as insecurity right. or vanity. vanity. And, you know, you talk about yeah, yeah. And, and being it being very superficial. But I think you talk about it in a way that, you know, is probably more kind of the Hippocratic oath kind <laughs> of actually transforming people mm-hmm. and being sort of a cathartic healing process. I totally believe in that. But first off, let me say something yeah. about the psychodermatology <laughs> situation. Yeah, what do you think about that? I mean, really? I know. But it also, it totally makes sense because I feel like, you know, having been in beauty so long. Yes. And, you know, I can remember, you know, being on the sales floor talking to people and, they would say, oh, but my dermatologist prescribed this. Yeah. And they would look literally like their face (laughs) went through a meat grinder. (laughs) And I think, you know, for so long, you know, doctors have this, and they should, credibility, they go to school, whatever. But it, you know, we, we live, have lived in this time of 
almost like cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And so you're treating, you know, oh, you know, you have a pimple. I'm going to put this drying lotion on it rather than saying, okay, what's the source? Or what caused the pimple? What caused the pimple? Thank you. So I think that's why I think the whole, what do they call it? Psychodermatology or whatever. Yeah. You know, there, and there is this connection between, you know, I've seen people with, and I think it's one of those moments for me when I worked at Dennis Grove Skincare and we had this peel. Right. And we could literally transform people's skin. Yes. And so people who have acne are incredibly self-conscious. Of course. And so so the ability to do or give someone something that can give them confidence is so rewarding. And powerful. And powerful. So there is that kind of, uh, maybe, you know, they're making it to be a bigger thing than it is. But I think we can't like discount the psychology. I do not think. But can you talk about sort of the healing that you've seen happen? Of course. Well, I don't know about the term psychodermatology yeah. <laughs> and the new study, but I but really is there there's psychology in everything that yeah, we do. There should be. Particularly in beauty, all forms of beauty, and you can speak to yeah. that with your beauty experience, and most definitely with plastic surgery. There is psychology in everything that we do. And I think the psychology of beauty is particularly complex because I think that Beauty is something that we are innately, as it's fundamentally human, it's in our DNA. I think it's something that we as humans are innately attracted to. So the pursuit of it, the maintenance of it, the going for it and doing what it is that we feel that we need to do to feel beautiful and attractive should not be discounted. And I think that it is transformative. Not only is beauty or how you, if you perceive, when you perceive yourself to be beautiful, not only is that transformative, But it's also empowering. So for me, I think that one of the things that led me to this field or why I think I'm aligned with it is because I think that that's part of my mission to help each person bring out their best version of themselves. And it just so happens to be that I do it through the language of beauty and procedures. Mm But I think it's transformative. I think beauty is empowering. And if I can help by performing a procedure or, you know, letting someone know about a skincare product or anything else that is beauty related where they feel like they can bring their best foot forward and frankly put their best face right. forward, confidence can increase, um, a sense of a better sense of self can increase. And I think that reverberates. Boy, if you're feeling beautiful and confident, maybe you smile to the person walking down the street and maybe that smile, you know, just changes that person's mood. I think the reverberations and the ripple Mm -hmm. effects from what beauty can do for a person and other people, I think it's phenomenal. It was Dostoevsky in one of my favorite books who said, beauty will save the world. And I run that quote from here to eternity. I'm not really sure what he meant. Right. But I think it makes a lot of sense. I 100% agree. Right? It's transformative. And such a smart quote. And such a smart quote. And why is it in, on, in a negative way that in some countries that perhaps women do not have as many right. liberties and freedoms – when someone wants to make a statement and about anger or retaliate against a woman, they throw acid in her face. Yep. They take away that thing that they believe is her power, right? Yep. They're not chopping off a finger. God forbid these are all grotesque things, but they're throwing acid in her face. So that to me says a lot. Yeah, it's you know, deep. I mean, beauty is really it's deep. powerful. It is. it is. It's deep. Um. You know, I think that one of one of the, I love many things about yeah. you, but one of my <laughs> favorite you. things is you have like this insatiable curiosity for I like do. all things beauty and wellness. <laughs> I know. Um, 
And you also have a bit more than just Wonderlust. Oh, like, oh if gosh. you have a chance to jump on a plane and go somewhere, it doesn't even matter where it is. I know. <laughs> I think we share that. Yes. Is there a particular source or um, place that you go to for inspiration <sighs> or information? Yes. Um, and then sort of as a follow-on, what is the strangest beauty treatment you've <laughs> ever had? <laughs> wow. So inspiration and information. So I read a lot. I am a quintessential nerd. I subscribe to your blog and newsletter and I read it religiously. So thank you for doing that because I think it's valuable information and highly entertaining (laughs) and it contributes most definitely to my life. So I read a lot. I read the plastic surgery journals. I read the, I read the magazines, the Vogue's, the allures, you know, the L's. I scour through them monthly. I make it my responsibility to read what my patients are reading so that I can answer questions. Mm -hmm. I have patients who come from abroad and they bring me their newspaper articles about, you know, different procedures that they're doing overseas that we don't have the access to um, perform here. And I read into those. I have traveled, yes, extensively to learn more about procedures, even though we may not be able to perform them here. I've gone to Paris. I've gone to London. I've gone to Asia because I'm curious. And wow, the world of beauty out there, global the beauty. of beauty in Asia is fascinating. Awesome. <laughs> I know. It's like plastic surgery is like, wow. like the Vegas Strip. Vegas Strip. <laughs> I, 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 I just read an article about how eyelid surgery is the surgery mm-hmm. in Kazakhstan. Oh, really? Kazakhstan. I almost went to Kazakhstan to give a lecture, but I couldn't get it together. But anyway, so yes, insatiable appetite for learning because I love to learn. It helps keep me alive. It helps my brain going, which when you keep your brain very busy is one of the best things you can do for anti-aging. I agree. <laughs> I agree. You know, talking about you know, there. I think there's been such a transition, and I'm sure you've seen that, of, you know, 20 years ago, yes. plastic surgery or the practice of plastic surgery was something sort of middle-aged ladies who lunch yeah. did. And, yes. you know, they'd go on a vacation mm-hmm. and they'd come back looking very refreshed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also you had, there was this moment where you could look at someone's boobs, nose, lips, and immediately identify, like, who did the work, which is kind of like a weird branding exercise. Yes. But I feel like we're kind of going away from that a little bit, and we're sort of, like, going towards a more natural Mm. look. Can you talk about a little bit of kind of the evolution? And, I mean, at the end of the day, you're an entrepreneur as well. You have, you know, you have your own practice. I do. So you also have to think of, like, the business implication. I do. Of sort of the the changing aesthetics and times. Yes. So are you ahead of the curve on those things? Or, like, like how does it actually play out in a business sense? So, you know, my father is is a corporate banker. And he often said to me, you're not a very good businesswoman. (laughs) And probably not. Am I entrepreneurial? Yes, I do have my own practice. And I think yes and no in answer to your question. So let's see how it plays out in my practice. I think that the sort of return to a more natural look is not new for me. Right. I actually have a bit of a reputation as if you want a natural, subtle look, outcome, results, go to Dr. Shirley. So 
I think I'm known for that and I have been doing that. But the fact that we're sort of coming back around to that, I'm not sure that everyone will ascribe to that aesthetic because there are certainly lots of people in this world who still like the extra, who still well, like that baba boom. you were actually doing the tweakments before they were <laughs> yes, a thing, right? I was totally doing the <laughs> tweakments before they were a thing. When I first read that tweakment, I thought, okay, that's interesting. That's what I do. I that's tweak. what I do. I've been doing. I like tweaks. Um, how it plays out in business, good ways and not so good ways. I guess good ways is that in terms of branding, I never intended to brand myself as the natural, you know, plastic surgeon type of thing. It just sort of happened because those were a lot of the results that I was getting. And that's what people talked about amongst their friends. Right. Um, how it doesn't work out in my practice, at least in my practice, is that I sometimes say no. I sometimes say no to patients when I think that there's a result that I cannot deliver or will not mm -hmm. deliver for them. I have had patients walk in and show me photos of celebrities and and they're looking 180 degrees different from the celebrity. And that's not work that I feel comfortable mm -hmm. that I could do for them. I have actually had patients fill out a questionnaire. And when I ask, what are your previous procedures or what have you done? And if they say only one thing, and it's quite obvious to me that there are multiple things that have been done. I mean, there's, there's a trust and a, an no, integrity honesty. there that's, that's lost. And therefore, I do not work with that patient. So how it plays out in my practice is in very interesting ways. I still read a lot. I still go to um, conferences and conventions and learn about new inventions and innovations, and, but I'm very cautious about bringing them into my practice. But what are some of the advancements that you think we're going to see in not only procedures, but also sort of technology oh, yeah. and, you know, that will impact kind of how you practice medicine. Absolutely. Well, there are innovations that are coming, such as I definitely think there's going to be more devices right. in the world of aesthetics. I'm interested in a few of them, not excited about all of them. I think technology will play a huge role. Technology is already playing a huge role in medicine and health and right. wellness as they are. And then they will definitely extend into aesthetics. Some of the innovations that I know are coming and are currently being worked on that I'm excited about are DNA. I think using your DNA as much as you can, you know, right. some snips here, some, you know, proteins there, and incorporating that into health, wellness, and aesthetics based on my DNA or based on some of my genes or proteins, what's the best moisturizer for right. me? I think that's super exciting. And innovations in cellulite, oh, I mean, that's coming. You really know, exciting. One of the most interesting things that I hadn't really thought about it. Yes. I went to a conference recently and there was a lot of conversation about AI. Yes. Which is like fascinating and scary. Scary all at, the, at the, same the same time. Agreed. And you also have these sort of people who are sort of proponents of the good that it can do. Yes. And then you have sort of the conspiracy theory, like robots are going to take over the world. <laughs> right. But someone had a really interesting application mm -hmm. in for machine learning and AI yes. for medicine. Yes. And they actually said that there could be a time in the future where it would be considered malpractice to not have sort of an AI component to the diagnostic process. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that makes – it doesn't remove the human from the equation. No, it doesn't. But it sort of complements. And I was just like, that's really fascinating. Yes. Or, you know, where you could have a, a robot mm -hmm. being taken – taking care of people. Yes. Sort of as they get older and doing sort of the self-care things that it's yes. hard for a caregiver to do. Exactly. So I think it's kind of 
when you think about it in that context, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, fascinating, interesting, scary at the same time. Yeah. Robotic surgery, there's nothing new in robotic surgery. Machine learning residencies now, I mean, are using machines, devices, machine learning to help residents to sew better, stitch better, um, et cetera, in, in surgical practice and training. So that isn't anything new. But the incorporation of AI into diagnostic medicine is also very interesting. I agree it doesn't remove the human from it. So we're still going to have to have, obviously, doctors who go to medical school, et cetera, and maybe collaborate with AI, but also be able to still add that human component yeah. and say, wait a minute, the machine may be based on these algorithms, but the machine was not touching the patient right. or feeling the abdomen or really pinching how much fat there is and therefore... The human and, touch will always be important. And also for what you do, there is also an art to it. Because yes. you know you're yes. you're taught sort of the symmetry and the, yes. the mathematics of what the perfect yes. face is or whatever. <laughs> but there's also a lot about sort of kind of ethnicity and yes. those quirks that make people kind of who they are. That right. a machine learning robot, right. call it what you will. Right. Those but nuances. Who, will. But who programs the machines? Who programs right. the AI? If someone programs the AI and programs the algorithm, but that person perhaps never interacted with many people of different ethnic backgrounds. Right. They're programmed with inherent bias. They're programmed with inherent yeah. bias. And therefore... They're not for everyone. Exactly. So we have a ways to go. Exactly. So I think this is the perfect segue um, to kind of talk about a little bit uh, about sort of the evolution of not only sort of medicine and beauty, but also, I think, being sort of female entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And that's up next. And now here's our trend minute. Brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Navarth Batliwala from the Beauty Conversation, and I'm here to talk about trends. Disrupting dentistry. Now, this is part of a trend we've seen over the last five years, repositioning mundane rituals as pleasurable self-care activities. So we've been tracking the rise of aspirational personal care categories, such as deodorant and hair removal products. And the latest sector to be reimagined is dentistry. So, for example, you're getting toothpaste and fancy dental floss by brands like Coco Floss and this French brand called Bouli 1803. It's very shishi. Functional products really as part of a luxury self-care lifestyle. So the kind of consumer that thinks it's completely normal and fine to spend $30 on toothpaste, Net-a-Porter or Violet Grey in the same way that you would buy your Tom Ford lipstick. And then the dental clinic is the next up for reinvention. We're watching Tend in New York, which is a chain of modern dentist studios docked with direct-to-consumer toothpaste by the likes of Risewell and Hello. So again, new direct-to-consumer startups. Plus, you also get Netflix on demand and Bose headphones for a cool spa-like experience. We feel this is shifting the idea of going to the dentist from something horrible that you dread into an experience much more akin to going to a fancy gym or a spa. That's your Trend Minute. I'm Navaz Batliwala. And for more of our insights, go to The Beauty Conversation on Instagram and sign up to our newsletter. As a brand, the relationship you have with your contract manufacturer is a fundamental part of the supply chain and your success. Happy Farm Botanicals marries innovation with old-fashioned customer service. Located in the D.C. metro area, 
Happy Farm Botanicals is a leader in custom solutions for prestige brands specializing in non-toxic and natural formulations. Their full-time in-house team works with brands from ideation to product development through manufacturing and fill. For more information, visit happyfarmbotanicals.com. We sort of touched on kind of the taboos of plastic surgery and how it was sort of thought, you know, not so long ago to be something that women of a certain age did (laughs) kind of in secret. Yes. But, you know, all of a sudden we live in this social media selfie obsessed Mm. culture that's created this desire to look filtered in photos and in real life. Yes. And the result has been sort of this rise, meteoric rise in injectables and procedures that people are getting at a really young age. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to to get your thoughts on that. And then maybe a little provocative, and I don't know how comfortable (laughs) you're going to be having an opinion on this. Yes. But, you know, wherever there's sort of that big of a spike in anything, businesses crop out of it. Yes. So we now have the equivalent of dry bars for Botox. Mm -hmm. And so, like, what do you think about this level of accessibility for, like, I mean, it's still a medical procedure. Agreed. So, yes, I'm comfortable talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) I will gauge my words somewhat carefully. (laughs) Oh, dry bar of Botox. Let me first say that, yes, plastic surgery used to be taboo and hush-hush and sort of done secretly. Less so now. And I and I believe that that's as a result of social media, a result of the demographic where people are undergoing procedures and they're less, you know, they're, they're more open about some of the uh, procedures that they're having. Some celebrities are quite open about it. I think people are more open about the non-surgical procedures than the actual surgical procedures. There's something still a bit taboo about, wow, you actually underwent the knife to change something about yourself. I still think people may judge that, unfortunately. So is it still taboo? Less so, but surgical operations, I believe, still are a Mm -hmm. bit... um, secretive to most people, as they should be. It's nobody else's business. Um, Dry bar of Botox. Okay, let me just say this. I applaud having options and I applaud accessibility. I think anyone who wants to be able to change something about this or get a little tweak, they should be able to do that. And sometimes the barrier to entry is cost, and I fully understand that. So I applaud that. And I'm happy that there are such... Institutions, organizations <laughs> that um, allow that to happen for some people. I will say, however, that that is personally, those are not places that I would get my treatments. Aside from being a physician where I can do it right. myself, but even if I were a non-physician, those would not be places that I would have my work done. Because in my opinion, the cost is not just the fee, is not just about the procedure. It isn't just about the cost of the Botox or the cost of the filler. It isn't just about the syringe and the supplies and everything that you use. I like to think that my patients come to me understanding that inherent in my fee is, yes, of course, the cost of the supplies, but also my time, my expertise, my care and compassion, my sense of artistry, and my devotion to doing the procedure as best as I can to give them the best result that I can without complications. But if a complication does occur, 
that I am well-trained to handle that as well. So I think there's a level of expertise and care and compassion and artistry and understanding of anatomy and physiology that I believe ought to be honored. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I think on the the one side, I'm kind of in awe. Yeah. I mean, I, I read something recently where it's in the UK. Mm-hmm. There is actually something called the Kylie Jenner package. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a Kylie Jenner package, and I think it's like – 299 pounds like it it is literally packaged you know and and it's it's sort of the equivalent of getting hair extensions wow so I kind of wonder if as a beauty industry yeah you know do we do we have a responsibility Mm -hmm. to educate yes because you know having something injected in your face yes is not the same as getting hair extensions agreed 100 percent and Keep in mind, it's something taken from the outside going into your body, and that then translates into the whole health and wellness and how do you really feel about yourself and self-care. So, And also inherent in that is time. Do you really want to go someplace where, you know, every 10 to 15 minutes you're being cycled right. through for something? So I, I take my time. I'm, I'm pretty slow. Yeah. Um, but I think that's really important to what I do. And it's the aesthetic and it's the high touch that is – valuable not only to me if I were a patient, but I hope to the patients that come to me. Well, you know, I think on the topic of wellness, I know wellness is kind of massive. Massive. Yeah. And, you know, how you live your life and, yes. and how you sort of practice. But, you know, I think um, one of the most interesting things to me is what we've seen is this merging of beauty and wellness. So yes. all of a sudden, you know, we're seeing ingestibles on the shelves of Sephora. Yeah. And there's almost, I don't even know that there's a distinction. I think the two categories have merged. merged. Yeah. And I think what we're beginning to see is that same sort of disruption happening in healthcare. Yes. Particularly when it comes to women. Yes. And I'm really interested in your perspective because, you know, why do you think that it's taken so long for the medical community to realize that women and men have significantly different needs when it comes to their health? I mean, we have different plumbing. Yes, very true. (laughs) We have, you know, we go through kind of these fundamental changes in our lives. Childbirth. Yes. You know, know, when you become a woman. Yes. um, Going through menopause. And all these taboos are like being knocked down. Yes. Kind of at the same time where the plastic surgery taboos are being knocked down. Yes. But it's taken so long for how medicine is being practiced, yes. both sort of in the approach, but even the physical environment. Right. And so, like, what? Do you, why do you think it took so long? And, like, what are your thoughts about it? And where do you yeah. think it's going to go? Well, firstly, it's about time. Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's about time. I think it. one of the reasons why it took so long was because in the past, medicine was the rules of medicine, the regulations of medicine, how medicine should be practiced really were dominated by men. And um, there was also some thinking that, oh, we're all humans. And yes, you know, men and women are different in fundamental ways, but we're all humans. And health-wise, we all need the same things. We all need our plumbing to work, even though our plumbing's different. We all need to have mental health. We all need to have physical health, medical health, et cetera. And because the systems are the same, everyone's got a liver. Mm -hmm. Most people have livers, gallbladders, you know, intestines. And therefore, because the physiology or the anatomy is the same, 
then perhaps medicine should be the same for men and women. But of late, thank goodness, there's um, more realization that women do need different things. And we think about our bodies differently from the way men think about Mm -hmm. their bodies, I believe. We think about our appearance differently. Maybe we think we know or inherently understand that how we are on the inside really does manifest on the outside and therefore we're taking more stock in that and feeling better and investing in our inner health as well as our outer health. So I think that it took a long time because of those reasons, but finally we're all coming around. Thank goodness. I know. I think, I think concepts like parsley health yes. and slow living. Functional medicine. Functional medicine. Yeah. I think like this rise of... You know, I, I, I was probably like 10 years ago, I went to kind of a functional um, medicine You doctor. were ahead of your time too. I guess so. It made so much yeah. sense to yeah. me. Yes. But it was also sort of considered one of those things woo, that woo. You, woo, woo, <laughs> you have way too much money, like more money right. than sense. Yeah, so they do but not accept insurance. They do not accept no. insurance. Yeah. And I still think it's, you know, I think there's also, there are a lot of women behind these concepts, which I think is very interesting. Yes. And we've talked about this where there are still female doctors that don't subscribe to the functional thing at all. A lot of doctors don't. And I think I I shared with you, I went to a doctor and there was sort of an issue. And the first thing she wanted to do was prescribe something. Yep. And that's always my personal choice, but my last option. Yes. And I told her that I was going to try acupuncture instead. Did she And she literally looked at me (laughs) and said, that's for neurotic people and you're not neurotic. Stop. And I was like, okay, but I'm still going to do it. That's right. Good for you. And so I kind of feel like, do you think that that kind of old school approach – and this is like – you know, on Madison Avenue yeah. in New York, oh, yeah. you would think kind of a more open-minded, evolved. evolved. But do you think that's changing? And is it changing sort of in how medical schools yes. are sort of teaching the next generation? I believe it is changing. Um, but it isn't so old school. I think that attitude is prevalent. Um, I do understand the push for functional medicine is definitely increasing and gaining momentum But it is expensive. For the most part, those physicians do not accept insurance, you know, functional medicine, integrative medicine, alternative medicine. The fact that it's called alternative, it should be complementary medicine. But because it is so expensive, not everyone has access to it. But it would cost ultimately – it would ultimately cost less less money. I agree. Because it's preventative. I agree. Rather than sort of – it would take time. That cycle would right. take time, but I agree. It would cost less. Prevention, right? Prevention right. is, I think, the key cornerstone to health. Um, I believe in functional medicine because it makes sense to me. Before it's just it was so ever common sense. It, before it even is part of my culture. It's yes. part of how I was trained. It's hard, part of how I trained myself. It's why I learned Reiki. I know this is going to sound really crazy. It's why I learned homeopathy. These are not things that I learned in medical school. I had, I think, one semester of nutrition in medical school. I then took a year of integrative nutrition because these are the things that are important to the way that I practice. So I am interested in functional beauty because I think beauty and wellness are along the same spectrum. And do you think the beauty industry is sort of 
either needs to evolve along those lines. Yes. Do you see it happening? I see it happening, and it's coming. I know of a few companies. I've consulted with a few companies who actually are taking swabs of DNA. We talked about DNA earlier. And then they're plugging that into their algorithms to determine the best serums or the best creams for somebody's skin. So that is coming. Not only is functional beauty coming, functional medicine is having an impact. And also, I think, personalized, customized Health, wellness, and beauty mm. are absolutely yeah. key. I think they're they are the way to the future. There is I can't remember the name of it, but there is a it's a medical practice in Seoul that yes. is like super super high end, and you yes. have to have you have to pay a yes. yearly yeah concierge of, medicine. You have to it's pay concierge medicine, yes. but and it's also beyond sort of the concierge yes. component of it. It is like highly customized and it's that. sort of head to toe. So it's I everything from sort of a GP yeah. to plastic surgery. I like, love it. And there's a gym there. It's yeah. like really fascinating. I, I Do you need think to that visit. that is kind of the future? Or is that just sort of going to be for like the 1%? And- I think initially, I do think it's a part of the future. And I do think initially it probably will be prohibitively expensive for most people, maybe myself included. I'd have to work there. I'd be like, hey, can I have a job? But I do think models of that nature are for sure. I think they're going to be here. I think they may not be coming soon, but I think they are the wave of the future. I think they're the next generation or the next generation after that because personalization, customization, everybody wants that feeling. Everybody wants that, you know, quote unquote, old school feeling, um, which is too bad that it's old school, of having your doctor, your practitioner, your caretaker, spend the time with you to really try to understand you. And not only like, you know, sometimes I find when you go to a doctor, you know, you're talking about really uncomfortable things of sometimes. Course. Yes. And so if you have a doctor that doesn't really know you, mm. they can't really pull out of you what you might not be saying, right? Right. right. <laughs> Although, listen, no, I, I don't have a problem saying yeah. exactly what's on my mind. No, and, I know. And then being a physician, <laughs> I'm like, okay, listen, this is what's going on with me. And I have to be careful when I'm a patient because then I don't want to tell the doctor what right. to do. But I have gone in and said, oh, hi, I want this test. <laughs> Please test for that. <laughs> right. But you, you have a little bit of background. You're not like, it's not like me going on WebMD and like self-diagnosing. Everybody's got an internet MD. But listen, it, it, makes, it makes me a difficult patient. Yes, I know that um, you asked a question earlier about the future train, the training of future doctors. I do think medical schools are incorporating not just soft skills and, and the bedside manner type of courses, but they are incorporating how to use technology, how to use AI, um, how to use um, different innovations in medicine, how to work with these devices, how to... And using that information as a complement to how you will interact with the patient and not just cure the illness or the disease or Mm -hmm. the condition, but actually make their lives better and lean more towards longevity and a long life, a long, beautiful life, free of not just disease, but dis-ease and feeling ill at ease. It's also sort of optimizing. It's optimization. Why else would right. we be going through all right. of this? Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so there's one last sort of topic. Last. Um, well, you know, because I think it's sort of there are two big topics. Okay. Heavy. Okay. Um, I'm ready. I'll be and serious. And sort of like, I mean, I think serious. Okay. I'll important. be serious. Okay. And it's the isms. Ooh, those three letter words. The isms. So, you know, medicine in general mm. is, has been sort of a male dominated field. Yes. And surgery, mm. plastic surgery, <clears throat> is particularly macho. Yes. 
have you had to deal with sexism? I think I know the answer to that question. Am I sitting here? Yeah, like, <laughs> how did you deal with it? Uh, um, you know, is it still as male-dominated as it was? Okay. I can say that things have gotten better because I read some recent statistics that in medical schools, the ratio between male and female medical students is just about equal. So 48-50, 50 you know, et cetera, equal to 100%, obviously. So that is better. The numbers of women entering into surgery, while mildly increased, is still relatively low, obviously, in comparison to men going into surgery. I cannot speak... Why do you think that is? For many reasons. Rigorous. Not that women can't handle it. Hours. Hours, long hours. um, Extensive mental, psychological, emotional, physical... Stress and drama, frankly. I'm just going Mm -hmm. to say drama. At a time when we are at our reproductive peaks. So it's a decision that has to be made. I made the decision to go into surgery because I loved what I was about to do. And it was the, even though I tried not to like it, Mm -hmm. I wound up loving it. Mm -hmm. And so I made that decision knowing that... It would be at a time when some of my friends were getting married and having children. I clearly did not do that. I got married much later in life. It is a decision, and it's unfortunate that modern, current, maybe even past upbringing of young girls, ladies, and women is such that you have to choose one over the other, and I think that is bloody unfortunate because both are still possible isms in my plastic surgery training. Now, I know this is a bit more universal, but I'm going to Mm -hmm. be kind and I'm just going to keep it to my experience. (laughs) Okay. My experience was not pleasant. My experience was traumatic. My experience was dramatic. Despite that, I was one of the things that kept me going was because I loved what I did and do. And I was focused on it. And I feel that it's truly part of my purpose and my mission to make the world a better place, more beautiful place, one person at a time, and to help educate or re-educate people about feeling empowered in their own bodies and their best version of themselves and to find their own beauty. And also, I had a tremendous support system. I didn't feel as if I had advocates in the programs where I was training. I didn't really have too many, if any, mentors I had mentors in other industries, so I was able to sort of translate other industry Mm -hmm. mentors and values to what I was doing, and I have a tremendously supportive family and friends. I remember coming home one afternoon after some surgical thing, Um, and it wasn't that there was a complication with a patient. Interestingly enough, throughout my surgical training, I learned how to deal very well with complications, with death, with um, other people's, you know, trauma and drama, Mm -hmm. and yet internally, when I was exposed to the emotional and psychological trauma and drama of my own training, it was very difficult for me to handle. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I came home one afternoon, bawling, sobbing in tears, like, you know, snot, everything. I couldn't control. It was ugly. It was not beautiful. It was not a pretty thing. And it just so happens that my mom called me and I tried to get it together. You know, my mom is a very strong woman and, you know, like buck up. So rather than give away that I was having a hard time, she asked me how I was doing. She asked me some other question. Well, how was your day today? And I lost it. Mm -hmm. Again, the snot, the ball. And so I told her what happened, and finally she gave me a moment to pause. (laughs) And then she asked me one simple question. Do they know who you are? 
oh my gosh, every time I tell that story, it like warms me up. But what she meant by that was you have to remember who you are. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember that no matter what other people think about you and your abilities and your capabilities, even though they're judging you, they're scoring you, whatever, you have to know that you're here for a reason and you can do it. That's why you're there. That's why you were chosen. And you have to do it because it's what you wanted. So that is a seminal. That was seminal for me. And so a lot of therapy also. Right. <laughs> and spiritual healing. And that's another thing that led me to, you know, spirituality mm-hmm. and, you know, complementary medicine and Reiki and stuff like that. I've had a lot of help getting over that drama and trauma. And it's unfortunate that for a lot of women in those programs that the psychological assaults and the emotional insults and the microaggressions, which very much sometimes can be macroaggressions, can hold some people back. But I'm here. I don't know if that means I made it. I think you absolutely made it. Thank you. But I'm grateful for, like I, I used to joke around and say, I'm grateful for the haters because they taught me a lot about myself. And I'm grateful for the challenges because they taught me to persevere. And I'm grateful for the negativity because the negativity taught me to turn it around and be and transform them into positivity and things that I could learn from. So it's been it has been super duper challenging, but I love what I do and I don't regret that I'm here. I think it kind of goes into something that that we talked about over lunch. Yes. um, A few weeks ago. We did. And that's sort of this idea of ageism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it the is it sort of the last acceptable ism? And, you know, we, we also talked about how there was a generation of women before us yes. that kind of started chipping away at the yes, glass they ceiling did. that allowed us to sort of Absolutely. be who we are. Absolutely. And, and I know that you're sort of big and sort of giving back yes. um, to kind of change for the, the, the next generation. Yes. But, you know... I guess, what do you think hope will change? You know, we've seen in the beauty industry that there's this whole sort of group of women of a certain age um, (laughs) that are being sort of given retirement packages. Mm. And what I find is interesting is these are a lot of women who sort of started sort of kind of as the secretary, so to speak, and have worked their way up to presidents of divisions. And, you know, they they turn a certain age and they're being transitioned out. Yes. Yet, if you're a man, gray is good Mm. and you're being escorted into the corner office. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're starting to see that where business and corporations are actually making boards have more women and more diversity. Yeah. What do you think is going to take for it to really change? Again, I think it's getting better, but we still have a long way to go. No ism is acceptable. Um, No form of subtle misogyny is acceptable. I applaud the women who came before us because they did open the door, even though it's a crack. The door was previously closed. Exactly. And I do applaud the women who have the seat at that table even though, albeit, their numbers may be small or low. So we've made progress, we've made headway, and if there's any way that I could be a part of that, I'm going to do it because it's important. I can't imagine a future where the world is amazing, better, fantabulous, oh my gosh, phenomenal, without women and our contribution. We must 
be here. We must be at the table. We must be uh, be allowed to have the, not just allowed to have the conversation. We must be invited yes. to have the conversations and have our contributions be valued. I think one of the positive things that I'm seeing yeah. sort of happen is, you know, before, you know, so say you chose to sort of stay at home and raise children. Yes. And your children go to college and, you know, women have always gone through sort of, I guess, the the empty nest. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the cool things that I think is, is happening is that both women who have sort of chosen that path mm-hmm. and women who are sort of being sort of shown the door mm. are having almost this what's next moment. Absolutely. And having second careers. Yeah. And I actually so think cool. it's those women yeah. that are going to kind of change the next yeah. generation. Yes. Because they've already proven they've already proven yeah. themselves. Yeah. And now they're kind of doing things on their That's own right. terms. Yeah. I love that sort of it's it's the art of the pivot. Yes, right? exactly. It's the art of a pivot. And inherent in that pivot is transformation. Right. They've proven to themselves, I've done this, I know I can do that. So why not? I love that. I think yeah. it's very exciting. And um, I don't know what my pivot will be if I will have one. <laughs> but I look forward to yeah. that. I look for. I hope no one is showing me the door and offering me a package. I mean, I'm self-employed. Well, I so. know. You're going to just show yourself the door. Uh, no, yeah, I would show myself the door. I mean, I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> but I plan to and hope I can keep doing what I'm doing with modifications and enhancements yeah. and stay on course with my mission. Yeah. For a very, very long time. And maybe by then, either AI, Amazon, Google, or, you know, somebody else, Apple, will figure out a way for me to live to 120 and even look better. (laughs) So one last question. Yes. If there was one piece of advice Mm. that you could give to that young girl thinking about sort of a career in medicine or that girl sort of... In medical school or in residency that could make a profound impact on sort of her way forward, what would it be? Stay true to yourself. Stay absolutely true to yourself because there will be so many situations where you doubt yourself, where you're not sure what you are doing or what you want to do. And that's okay to, to doubt and to question. But going back to center and knowing who you are and knowing what you want for yourself... I think that's invaluable advice. Thank you, Dr. Shirley. Thank you, Kelly, so much for having me on your amazing podcast. This has been beyond fantastic. Thank Thank you you. so much. For Dr. Shirley, it's a matter of beauty. Her philosophy embodies the idea that aging gracefully may involve needles and scalpels, but it also includes nutrition and self-care. For her, being a plastic surgeon is a constant, challenging dynamic to provide service, be of service, to educate and teach, to listen and to perform. Wellness has disrupted the world of beauty almost beyond recognition. In order to look good, you have to feel good. No longer is the focus only on external measures to enhance beauty. There has been a shift to a more holistic approach, A movement from artificial to organic, from cosmetic repair to ongoing prevention, from topicals to ingestibles, along with scientific validation, that beauty changes everything. Given the shift in beauty towards wellness, owning your beauty, and all things natural, Dr. Shirley was way ahead of her time. While the industry and consumer preferences may have caught up with her holistic approach, she remains a role model. 
Dr. Shirley is evidence beauty and brains are not mutually exclusive. So in the end, it's a matter of beauty. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hello, everybody. My name's Dr. Shirley Madare, plastic surgeon in New York City. And to me, what matters most is a beautiful life. And what I mean by that is I know you're probably thinking, oh, of course, she's a plastic surgeon, so of course beauty matters to her. Yes, it does, but not just beauty in the way that you would think about it, but truly holistic, beautiful life. So beauty on the inside, beauty outside of you, beauty in all of its forms, and living the best life you can, for me, is a beautiful life. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter, LLC, Copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.